Is GMing just not making you feel that GM high you used to get? Are you prepping and prepping and not feeling fulfilled in your role as the dominant force at the table? Has that God complex finally worn out its welcome? Worry not, friend GM. We here at Mercurial Mindshapers and Personifiers will help you get your mojo back and find the true and deep reason you love to GM. First appointment is free. Just call 1-800-GMS-HIGH. We're ready to believe you. This is the Misdirected Mark Podcast, a podcast about gaming, game mastering, and entertaining you, our listeners. We are explicit, and you have been warned, and I'd like to thank Mike Willard for letting us use his music on our show. Now let's pick up those mics and get on with this thing. Welcome to the 484th episode of the Misdirected Mark Podcast. Tonight, we discuss emotional return on investment in your tabletop role-playing games. But first. My name is Jerry. My name is Phil. I'm Chris. And I am old man Logan. <laughs> did you just pat my head, Phil? I think he did. Think it, he did. it gives good show luck. Rub the head, rub the head, rub the head. Yeah. I can't reach it from there. I need to put like a magic eight ball on there now. We could do that. <sighs> check back later. <laughs> hey, you know what time it is? I think it's time for the temperature check. I think it's time for the temperature mm-hmm. check. It's cool. No, it's actually very warm right here where we are. It is a little warm. I'm trying to keep <laughs> it cool right. in this place. It's a thing. It's what it is. It's like 73 degrees in here. Yeah. He's abnormally warm. Don't worry. It's, yeah, that's fine. I tend to run hot. Yes. Yeah. By the way, I'm good. I'm fine. <laughs> Chris is good. I have to go back to work. It sucked. <laughs> other than that, it's good. Um, I'm cycling news at an alarming rate um, based on the last week's worth of headlines. So I'm <laughs> catastrophizing watching all this news. So I've been like cycling through Twitter uh, in a somewhat obsessive fashion to kind of keep up on what's going on. Not great dealing with it, but when the news cycle gets like this, I try to consume everything in sight. So I'm, uh, I'm working my way through it. I'm, I'm fine. Otherwise, Jerry, I'm feeling good. I just got back from uh, a two week vacation down in the Caribbean. So I've been relaxed and actually haven't been following the news cycles because we weren't getting a lot down there. So I'm just catching up a little bit. On Boy, I can tell on. you some stuff, some shit. Sure. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but I'm actually feeling pretty good. My wife's down with the weather right now, but she's bouncing back. And I just went back to work for the first time and we had to wear shoes today. I haven't worn shoes in 15 days. So um, but I'm feeling good. Bob? I'm feeling pretty good, actually. Uh, I was a little worried. My, my lower back was a little tweaky earlier today. And I was like, don't do this. I don't, I don't need this. I don't. Um, it all sucks. But yeah. Other than uh, uh, feeling a little bit warm, I am uh, otherwise feeling really good. I mean, so, at least you don't have the lights blaring in your face. Exactly. I do not have the lights blaring in my face like you guys do. But I mean, you guys are the talent. I'm the I'm the tech. So at least I don't have to drive home. Bob's driving home. So. <laughs> I mean, you're, he's the tech in more than one way now. He's basically cranking it up and fills tummy. Yeah, right there. <laughs> I hope I left some room. I had tots and nugs tonight. That is so. a that is a teenage mutant turtle reference right there, everybody. I mean, it's a little tight in here after the tots. And if, and if you're older, this is the Doctor Theopolis. And now on with the show. Yes. Workshop, workshop, emotional return on investment. What are you getting out of this game? Why are you even putting up with these players and doing all this work? What is it that feeds you? We're going to find out here tonight. Where? In the workshop. Don't suck. Don't suck. <laughs> Does everybody get to say don't suck now? Yes. Yeah. And just, Any, just, anyways, Phil, I heard jamming is work. Always? No, no, not always, but hopefully most of the time. Being a player is work. I, I was talking to Phil, but I guess, Bob, it's not. In the same way as being a GM, being a player is much easier. That's not a knock on players. I'm just saying being a GM is work. Yeah. But is it fun work? Yeah, it's, it's fun work. Otherwise, why would we do it as a hobby? But it's still work. Mm-hmm. I don't like this intro. <sighs> right. Mm-hmm. Seriously, I was asking Phil, but you guys can let me get through this. 
Okay, guys. All right, I'm going to pose the question to all of us instead of just Phil this time, including our friends at home. So why do we all GM? Why do, why do you GM? Why do I GM? Why do we all GM? There's got to be a reason we put in that extra work, especially when our outside lives conspire to make things more difficult. And that's today's topic. Why we GM and how to make sure the games that we play and the groups that we run for make GMing worthwhile. But first, we got to go get that panda book of RPG definitions so Phil can lay down some foundation for this conversation. Behold! are in the presence of Definition Panda. Cool. All right. We got a few definitions we need to get out and establish for tonight, starting with emotional energy. This is how we feel about the things going on in our lives. This energy can be high or low, and it can be negative or positive. And not to get too in-depth with it, but let's just go with positive is better than negative. And higher is better than lower, right? Yeah. So quick, you know, quick four quadrants, right? Ideally, you'd like everything to be in the high positive and very little in the low negative or high negative, actually. Low negative would be not as bad. So arrange those quads as you like. But ultimately, that's what we're striving for is high positive energy. So I should put in a little table graphic for that, huh? Yeah. Okay. You're going to need high and high. It'll be weird because it's high positive, high negative or whatever. Sure, I'll figure it You'll out. You'll figure it out. Anyway, in terms of RPGs, we want the games that we run to give us positive energy and hopefully high positive energy. Table energy model. We covered this back in 460, uh, talking about getting excited, right? This model, the running of the game creates emotional energy for the GM and for the players. The players' reactions to the game generate energy that feeds back to the GM, helping to sustain the GM between sessions. Right. This goes back to what Chris was saying about games being work. Mm-hmm. So having that good feeling, that good energy as you come out of a game, as you're getting ready to sit down, maybe the next day or a week later or whatever to work on your game, that helps. Can I say that that whole thing about like if you do the thing that you love, you'll never work a day in your life. That's garbage. It yeah. is garbage. Yeah, so that's garbage. Crap. OK, yeah. I'm sorry. Continue. <laughs> Emotional return on investment is our last topic. ERI as an abbreviation. I did define most of this in a recent Gnome Stew article. This is the emotional energy you get after running a session that goes in contrast to the investment of time and creative energy for prepping the session. And it's related to the table energy model because it measures the energy gained at the end of the session, compares it to the work that goes into getting the game together. Those are solid definitions. I like I like everything you got going on there. As we stated in the intro, GMing is work. Always? No, no, we're not doing this again. You stop it. You keep going. Right. GMing is work. And when you have ample time and nothing is going on in your life, it's easy to prep a session, coordinate schedules, get your gaming stuff and space together, all of that. But in reality, we rarely have ample time. There's almost always something else going on in our lives. So we need motivation, motivation to come home from a bad day of work and knock out some prep for our game, some energy to get up off the couch after watching the kids all night and stat out some monsters, create some map tiles, whatever. Without that motivation, we can procrastinate, cut corners or feel burnt out. And let me tell you, that motivation is our good ERI. And when we have a good ERI, that means our emotional energy that we received is positive and high. And the feelings it brings outweighs the time and effort that we need to expend to get to the next session. But if we have a bad ERI from the last game, then the emotional energy we received is low or even negative. Now we have to overcome that, as well as all those other outside factors, in order to prep our next game. Sometimes we do this at a cost, and sometimes we just don't. And when that happens, games become stressful to run and often get canceled. So, as you stated in the table energy model, this is the feedback loop. So let's say that our emotional return investment is coming out of last session was high. Then we have a rough week. We can draw on the energy of the last session and find the motivation to put the game together. But then we have that session. It goes well. We get another good ERI. 
and it bolsters up for the next time until the next session. That's our positive loop. Over and over again, good sessions lead us to be more excited about the next session. <clears throat> On the other hand, if we have a rough session and the ERI is poor, then we have to fight through the bad ERI and other external factors just to prep the game. So what if we don't? We can be too overwhelmed or exhausted, maybe even cancel. Then we don't get that new loop of energy, hopefully positive ERI. If we don't get that energy, that means we'll have to work much harder to get the next session up to the table. And if this happens a few times, it can be enough to kill our campaign. Nobody wants that. No. I would say that that's happened to everyone here. Yeah, yeah. it's oh, happened yeah. to me many oh, yeah. times. Yeah. So why are you GMing and what is your good ERI? Based on the table energy model and the idea of ERI, it behooves us to understand how to get good ERI from our games. Some of that is going to come from the group as you run the game, the energy of the people playing, the story that unfolds, the thrill of challenges, etc. Right. That I mean, look, playing the game is always still the most important thing. Mm -hmm. All right. What we want to focus on past that is why do we as GMs, why do we GM? Knowing our personal motivations for GMing is insight into what we want to get from the game. And knowing what we want to get from the game informs us what will create good ERI and give us that positive emotional energy. There are many reasons why you might GM, far more than we can list, but we're going to give a few examples of why you might GM and talk about what generates good ERI for each of those. Bob, would you start us off? Absolutely. We want to keep gaming. The group and the game will not exist without someone to GM. That's true. If you want to keep gaming, then you understand you need to be the GM sometimes. While this isn't the best single answer, it's better if this is one of the reasons that you GM. The good ERI from this is that the group and the game persists. Another reason would be to entertain. Your interest is to entertain your players. You want to tell a compelling and dramatic story, have exciting encounters, have players gasping at plot twists. Maybe I want to gasp. <gasps> Thank you. Get those players to have those ooh and ah moments. Ooh. Ah. And maybe even shed a tear or two. I don't think anyone can cry. Man. Oh, never mind. I was wrong. My bad. <sighs> your good ERI comes when everyone is enthralled by playing through the diversion you are providing. The next one is service. Maybe your interest is derived from providing a service to the group. UGM because doing so allows you to serve others. Your good ERI comes from running the game to the players and seeing that you did a good job for them. Yeah, that's, that's a good one. Mm -hmm. uh, the next one, look, it's true. Ego yep. is part of it. You love the power of being game master and you enjoy wowing people with the awesome things you come up with. It's okay. You can admit it. You can. We're in a safe space here. Yep. We're in the trust tree. Except we're on the internet, so we're not. Yes. We're totally not <laughs> in the trust tree. He's, he's lying to you. Yes. <laughs> not on purpose. He wants you to feel good about this. Yes. But look, inside, ego is going to play a part of this for some of us, probably many of us. Your good ERI for this comes from receiving praise from the table. Mm-hmm. As long as you're good at receiving praise. Yes. Another thing is to craft a story. You may love crafting a story and seeing it play out at the table. I love that. Mm -hmm. You have all these great ideas for playing out epic stories and you want to bring them to the group. Your good ERI comes from the reactions of your players to the stories you're creating together. Yes, absolutely. Uh, another one, and I guess our last one, at least for this, our last one of our short list is surprise. You love seeing what happens at the table. You create situations for your players, wait to see how they react, and then enjoy how that game unfolds. I find it exciting and I hope you would find it exciting to try and oh, yeah. keep up with where the game is going and figuring out what to do next. Your good ERI comes from those moments where the game goes in places that you didn't expect. Always great. Yeah, Phil digs that. That's, yeah. that's a favorite. I actually like it a lot too. Yep. yep. All right. Let's talk about picking games, groups, and how to get good ERI from all of that. That seems reasonable. Yep. Yeah. So it's worth taking time and thinking about why you like to GM. You can reflect on it while driving to work, meditate about it, journal. However, you want to have that dialogue with yourself, but take that time. Actually sit down and say, why do I GM? It probably won't be just one reason. And it's actually even better if it isn't just one reason. Yeah. 
because it means that you have more than one path for getting good ERI. Because not every game is going to hit every objective. So having multiple paths is going to make sure that you get that good, positive energy. So reflecting on all that is going to help you decide what games work best for you. Do you like tactical aspects of gaming? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Then you should run games that have more tactical rules and avoid systems where combat has fewer tactical components. But what if I like games that do that too? Well, then again, you have multiple paths, That's right? true. I do have multiple paths. So but you find if, the games that blend them together. Yeah, that too. Right. But if your primary, like like I'm saying, if your primary is you love tactical stuff, like then, you know, maybe a PBTA, like masks might not be the that, best. That's any little thing. Right. Because yeah. masks is not detailed tactical nope. combat. Nope. Yeah. Okay. That's my point to that. So let's say your best ERI just comes out of making sure the game continues, right? This was my, you know, early years as a little GM. And the players all want to play a system that you don't particularly love, but that actually may not matter to you because it's more important that you keep running something and keeping the game together. And that gives you your ERI. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, I would rather if that's way more effective than just changing systems yeah. where people will just be like, ah, how does that go again? Ah! Over Godzilla. That's my uh, that's my group complaining noise. Ah! That's about right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a vulture. Your recent CGM may span more than just the type of games you want to run. It can also apply to your GMing style and the playstyle of your group. Your GMing style may include getting good ERA from acting. You might love to act out NPC interactions with your players. In that case, you want to find a game that involves NPC interactions and a group that enjoys embodying their characters. If you want a game with as few NPCs to portray, like a dungeon crawl, you might not get as much ERI. Sometimes it's good to be a thespian. Thespian. Acting. My leer was the toast of Croydon, wherever that is. <laughs> where is Croydon? If you know where Croydon is, please let us know in the comments. It's my favorite part of the play. This is where I come out. Oh, crap. Go ahead. <laughs> Likewise, if you're running a game with plenty of NPCs, such as a city setting, but your players just want to pick fights and smash things, you're making it harder to get that positive ERI. Let's get to the point. In order to get the most ERI from a game, your own GMing style and desires should be in alignment with the player's style and desires as much as possible. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be perfect all the time, but you got to get it close. That's true. So GMing is work. Not always. All right. All right. Fine. I am inclined to acquiesce to your shtick. GMing is often work. All right. It's all right. We need our games and groups to give us positive energy. This helps motivate us to push through all those outside forces so that we can keep prepping games. Because apparently prep isn't fun. Uh, I don't know. I like prepping, but whatever. I like prep. well, I like kind of prepping, prepping is, is, prepping is, prepping is Check good. the internet. Some yeah. people think it's bad, but yeah. they're just wrong. Right? <laughs> prepping prepping <laughs> for games is fun. Prepping for everything else, not always. Oh, that's fair. In turn, we can then run games which provide us you know, positive emotional energy. The emotional return on investment is a measurement to tell us if we are getting enough emotional energy to overcome what it takes to get the game to the table. So if you understand why you GM, then you can pick your games. We can pick our games. We can pick our play style and our groups to help improve our ERI. And that's going to help us GM for years and years. That's our look on emotional return on investment. We're going to jump into the roundtable in just a moment. But first, Bob, tell us about another show on the Misdirected Mark Network. Hey, tonight I'd like to highlight Pandas Talking Games. Queer gamers talking about tabletop role playing games and making outtakes. Uh huh. Join Pandas Phil and Senda every Monday answering listener questions about playing, running, and designing tabletop RPGs. Get cozy and let's talk about some games. But hey, is it Monday anymore? Uh, no, I think it's Wednesday. <laughs> I think it's, Shit. I think it's Wednesday because editing. So yeah, Wednesday. Wednesdays. 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 Wednesdays it is. Wednesdays it is, not Mondays. We're going to continue our topic of emotional return on investment with the following questions. Thank you, Radio Bob. Question number one. When was the first time you recognized your ERI wasn't being fulfilled? What did you do to correct the situation if you did correct it? 
I am far too old to recognize the first time. First of all, there wasn't even language like this like no, in the nineteen eighties right. no. to describe this. So I will pick a time. I will pick a time that I can remember. How about that? In the in the more near times. I think probably the most pivotal time for me uh was like sometime I think it's like the 2014, 2015. When did when did we like when did the group turn over? Do you remember, Bob? I, it's like that, it's like that range, right? It's like 2014, 2015. Pick eight years ago. Right. What's eight years ago? 2014. There you go. 2014. Yeah. Math. So it's powerful. All right. Um so, and universal. <laughs> so the thing is, I had reached a point where my ERI, um, I was not getting it from crafting, like hard crafting stories. I had just come off of my Iron Heroes epic, which was heavily crafted and I loved it, right? It was really good. But that same year I played Fiasco and had my first taste of kind of more improv gaming and um, really enjoyed the spontaneity of what happened at the table. And very quickly, I wanted to kind of move out of, like I started to realize I wanted to stop doing heavier and heavier games and do lighter games where more things happen at the table. Not all of my players were hot on this. When you say heavier, I assume less mechanically focused. Well, I, like I just come off of running an 18th level Iron Heroes campaign. Sure. Yeah, where that's, that's, where that's like 70, a lot of yeah. mechanical yeah. focus. Yeah. 75% of the session was... The fight. The fi- one fight, right? <clears throat> yeah. yeah. And I said the... Yeah, yeah, the <laughs> fight. Yeah, exactly. You said so, the words. And I, you, like, don't get me wrong, right? No no shame on that or no, you know, no besir- yeah, besmirching man, I, it. I, I love playing 4th edition. That game was all about the fight. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, Iron Heroes was a blast and I liked it. But as I noticed that my ERI was shifting, I wanted to move into other games and not everybody in my group wanted to. And then ultimately that group imploded. Like that's the short version of it. It imploded. Mm-hmm. Not everybody made the transition over... Um, actually a good number of people now that I think about it did not like we did not keep playing with those people. I say we because Chris was just starting with that group and Bob was in that group and like Bob is the only I think holdover, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah Bob essentially. and I yeah. mm-hmm. it started with Bob and I in nineteen ninety four and yep. like it just like, just keeps on going. This Bob and You'll I never get ride we're ride and die. Ride, ride or die. Ride or die. <laughs> yeah, ride and die on this. But anyway, that was like the that was the one uh that that's most memorable to me. And I just I realized that like I was not having fun running game. Like I was just not having fun. I was not excited about any of the games people were proposing and I wanted to run different stuff and do different things. That's when we started playing Dungeon World. Yeah. Yeah. Numenera, Dungeon World, like all of that stuff. Yeah. Sure. All right. Well, like Phil, my first time was way too long ago to remember sometime in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, But the first time I recognized it without the language was just after college, the 90s. Um, I realized the game I wanted to run was not the game the players wanted to play. Sure. Lean into the microphone. Okay, uh, like Phil, uh, my first time was too long ago to remember um, back in the 70s and 80s. But the first time I recognized it was in the 90s, just after college. Um, I realized the game I wanted to run was not the game that the players I now had wanted to play. Um, I wanted to get something that was more story focused, and most of the players just wanted to run around and kill stuff. Once I started realizing that I was slipping into the feeling of GM versus player mode that we had back in the 80s, I saw how little I was actually getting out of the game itself. I could see that they were getting frustrated every time I tried to get them to role play with the NPCs. So I just canceled the game and moved on to a different group. And that's why these days what we call session zero was so important to me, making sure that everybody's on the same page, everybody knows what they want to do, get a feeling. Because mm-hmm. um, I've had games where we do session zero, and by the end of session zero, I'm like, you know what? We're not going to play this game. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. smart. Yep. I can tell you guys don't want to play the game that I'm thinking about running, or it's not going to work, or this group just isn't jelly. It, it's actually... And it's good to know that. It, yeah, it's funny. Mm-hmm. We don't talk about that as being a good outcome from mm-hmm. session zero, but it's actually a great outcome from yeah, session yeah. zero. Like, sometimes failing early mm-hmm. is better right and by failing i mean like you you lay it all out and everybody's like nope or can't get together on it you're like oh we're just not doing this 
Yeah, I've had I've, games where you go to put together the game and as people are making their characters up, they get to the end of the first session and they're like, I can't create the character I wanted to make when you told me about this game. Mm-hmm. And you find people sitting there. Sometimes all you have to do is just, okay, we're, we're just going to bump everybody up to level five or whatever the equivalent would be. But sometimes it's just that the characters that they thought they were going to make don't fit this game session. And I'm going to find something else that works. I'm going to answer the previous question now too. Not that I wrote anything. But I have an answer. No, it's okay. Good. Uh, I, it happened actually not too long ago, like three years ago, when I realized that I, I was not completely done, but I was bored playing games where I, where it was just constantly, uh, what's going to, I'm not really sure what's going to happen next. This like, is Chris's pendulum and Phil's pendulum to sure. do this. Well, we played Dungeon World for forever. Yeah, then we yeah. played Masks and then we played Monster yeah. of the Week for a little while. We played a lot of Power by the Apocalypse. We games. did. We even played like some like Numenera type stuff. And, and we, just, we played, uh, we played on Wednesday nights. We played uh, the Scum and Villainy. Scum, yeah. Yeah. We played Scum and Villainy, and then we were playing uh, Band of Blades. Yeah. And then I got another job, and I had to stop. But I was already sort of... I, I actually really liked Scum and Villainy and Band of Blades because they were kind of doing the thing that I was looking for, which mm-hmm. is how do we start putting real novel narrative movie-styled story structure inside of tabletop role-playing games. And it took me a couple of years of reading a bunch of books and doing a bunch of studying to start figuring out maybe how to do that. And the fact that it doesn't exist, it doesn't, these things don't actually exist. There's nothing that's talking about it in tabletop role-playing games yet. Mm-hmm. People are hinting around at it and then like poking at it. And there's indie people like getting, and by indie, you know what I mean? The, the, the yeah. super small book publishers that are doing really avant-garde stuff. Uh, but how to get a true three-story structure inside of a, three act structure which is really like 15 pieces mm-hmm. inside of a, a role-playing game where do these things come from and there's not really like that feels like a railroad right but it's not there are mm-hmm. decision points and choice points that can be put there and that's when i stopped running games for like two years no it's fine and yeah. now that i have sort of figured out how to do some of this stuff i'm running games again so it had nothing to do with us accidentally blowing up a star system then <laughs> no that was actually pretty fun <laughs> i mean we were almost done with that game anyway yeah. they blew up a star that was cool yeah. it happens wasn't our uh, attention, but it worked. Oh man, it made them outlaws, like like terrible outlaws. Heinous war crimes. It was a heinous war crime. They killed a lot of people. We didn't mean to. Went full Phoenix, huh? Well, they were bad guys. They were building a super weapon, weren't they? Yes, they Some were. of those people worked on that ship were not necessarily evil. Oh, it's a Death Star rule. Yeah, yeah. it's a Death Star rule. Please, please They're refer- just doing their jobs, man. Yeah. Yeah. Please refer to clerks. Yes. <laughs> All right. Question number two. Yep. What are your reasons for jamming that provide positive ERIs? And yep. how do you go about trying to make those happen at the game table? Or between sessions. I'm going to amend some of the stuff I wrote, but mm-hmm. sure. As we evolved and as I was reading the first part, but really, what it comes down to is I have three. I have three avenues of ERI that I really like. Um, one is entertainment, right? I like entertaining people. Two is service. <coughs> like I really like. I like running stuff that you guys enjoy play. Mm-hmm. That's a huge component for me. Uh, and three is being surprised. I still like the surprise thing. Um, and uh, you know, it, it varies how much each one of those counts for a given game, for a given campaign or whatever. But those are like my three roots of ERI. Are we having fun? Have I provided an entertain an entertaining session for you? And did I also get to be surprised along the way? Like, did you guys do something I was not expecting? Right. Those are like my three roots. And the way I make that happen for the game is that I always ask you guys, you know, you guys know this in the other group, you guys are in the other group. 
I always ask, what do you guys want to do or see in the next session? Because I'm not running this from, and this goes in contrast to me years ago, we could have this discussion, what was your old style? Like I could tell you three other forms of ERI I used to have. But what I do is I like pull this, that stuff in and start figuring out like, cool, if this is what you guys want to see, let me see what I can do with it. Can I subvert one of these for a little surprise? You know, what can, you know, that kind of thing. And that's what I use to, um, that's what I use to create the entertainment part. And then delivering the game is the service part, right? Like, I hope I'm running, like, I hope the environment is nice. Like, you know, I've gotten into uh, baking for you guys, right? Mm -hmm. Like, here's some treats, like that kind of thing. And things were delicious. Oh, thanks. That's Mm -hmm. that's a center recipe. I can take no credit for the recipe, but I am getting pretty good at executing it. Wait till I reach the pumpkin uh, spice muffin. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's going to be the fall muffin. Anyway, bring the pumpkin spice tonight. (laughs) And then lastly, the way I get the surprise part is, and I've just very, um, very much stuck to this um, piece of advice from Dogs in the Vineyard is I only create problems. I don't create solutions. I don't I don't think too much about how you guys are going to solve problems. And like for a game like Ox, it's even better because I have I don't have to think at all about how you're going (laughs) to solve problems. In fact, it's worse if I do, right? It's better if I just like, oh, yeah, you know, big space tower is kicking off radiation. What do you do about it? And then like lean back and just play off you guys. Um, Knights Black Agents isn't quite like that. I can't quite be as surprised. But Knights Black Agents is let me like create the ocean of clues and let's, you know, paddle through it and let's see what you discover. And then as you connect things and you're like, oh, shit. That's the surprise part that I'm like, yes, like you see the pieces coming together kind of thing. I always like watching how they interpret stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Like how do they interpret the information that you're giving them? Yeah. Yeah. Or when the, like the final piece drops, they're like, oh, shit, that's the plan. You're like, yes, that is the that yeah. quiet guy is obviously an assassin spy. Yeah. That quiet guy was obviously an assassin spy, not an assassin spy. <laughs> Morgan Fee employees. I'm totally not, not an assassin. Right. <laughs> they were referencing something from a game that I was running. We talked about it like episodes ago, but that that, that poor kid was just really shy and awkward. And <laughs> so yeah, those so those are my three main forms of ERI today, and that's how I that's how I get it. That's how I like get that stuff from you guys. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Jerry. I'll, you, you go next. I'll go last. All right. I didn't write anything down again. That's okay. Because when I GM, um, I want to create a fun plot and a fun setting for the players to engage in. Uh, seeing them enjoy interacting with the NPCs and exploring the world and the story would give me good ERI. doesn't matter if they follow the plot as much as just surprising me and doing cool things. I'm like Phil, I like to be surprised by the players and their actions. Uh, I like leading questions and cooperative world building help with keeping me entertained because they add things that I'll never suspect. Um, one of my favorite examples comes from when I was running Star Wars. One of the characters noticed that someone he was following was also being followed. I had a little bit of idea what I wanted to do with that, but I wanted to see where they were going with it. So I told them that they recognized someone from their past in the group that was following them. I assumed that they would pull something out of their backstory and kind of tie it back in. And without missing a beat, the player looked at me and said, why is my brother leading a group of bounty hunters? And that opened up a lot of options and told me a little bit about what sort of encounters they wanted next. I wasn't prepared for a family squabble on that um, or to explore why the character's wealthy and noble background brother was now a bounty hunter, but it worked. And told me that they he wanted to have some encounters with bounty hunters, he wanted to have a fight with his brother, um, gave me a hold of the direction to go, but also told me what they wanted to do. And the rest of the players jumped on it. Um, surprised me entirely. I'm like, that's great. And kind of taught me that that's a good place to just put something in place, have an idea what I kind of wanted the encounter to look like, but leave it kind of loose so that when they gave me some some feedback on what they thought it was, was going on, to move it in that direction. Because that surprised me and gave me some chance to improv on the spot. Um, it gave them a chance to feel like they were more engaged with the story itself and that it immediately made that encounter personal. Not just, oh, this is somebody 
this was my old teacher. This was a mentor. It's, that's my brother. And he's leading a group of bounty hunters. I'm like, all right, this is going to be something interesting. So um, they were no longer allies. <laughs> Chris? So I am, my, the, the most important thing for me is, uh, is the storytelling. And not me telling the story, but the story that me and the players together at the table are crafting makes sense. Mm-hmm. It has to feel for me like somebody constructed thing that, that they thought about, which is hard because these are all first drafts. Yeah. Like our, our role-playing games are all first drafts. They're not mm-hmm. the fifth or sixth drafts like I, of my novel. So let me ask you a question. Can I sure. endeavor yeah, for absolutely. a second on this? Have you considered, um, instead of just as a safety tool, have you considered putting script change into your game? Script change is in all my games for the most part. Sure. But have you considered like in, like just doing it, like fixing things, like take two? Uh, no. Okay. I'm just curious. Like, if you're because you're 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 talking about the dichotomy right and this and this is the challenge right of mm-hmm. of organic spontaneous play with trying to adhere to uh, a sensible logical story structure that feels like more of a produced work i was just curious if you'd ever thought of dabbling with the like oh that was a good line but hey let's rewind like try it again you know sometimes i do that when somebody says something that doesn't make sense yeah okay oh i like i i'm like i say look i know that you said that but your character knows this sure and then let's do you want to say something different yeah Yeah. i'm just curious because that would be to me that's actually an interesting style of play that i've never done right i've never done a style play where i've tried to produce a more coherent story than just what like flopped out of play don't worry everybody we'll be talking about this in the future i have Mm -hmm. several different episodes of this show to talk about that yeah i just think it's cool right like i think that would be a cool experimental play where you just like you start a scene and you're like, mm, uh, rewind. Give me a second take on that. Yeah. We, we didn't call it that, but we've had that happen a couple, both game I've played in, where the entire party missed a clue and attacked the good guy, not the bad guy, and wiped out all their allies. And then the GM's like, I don't understand why you did that. We explained to them like, oh. That wasn't me. Yeah. No, that wasn't you. No, you would have stopped it early on. I would have. Yeah. You would have yeah. asked us. I'm like, yeah, sure you want to do this? Yeah. Like- and as a GM, I've had it happen where I realized, I'm like, stop for a second. You guys realize this is this. No, we don't. Oh, let's back that up and redo that encounter again. Uh, but we didn't, I didn't know that's what it was called. We just did it that way. So, so, so um, do, okay. let, me, let me kick on the, yeah, yeah. so the, the interesting thing about like that being the most important thing to me is that it's still a role-playing game, right? So sure. people still have to make choices and things mm-hmm. like that. So the, one of the ways that I do is like, I, I have now studied enough for a long enough time about story structure about uh, to be like all right these are the beats that eventually need to happen or like the things that need to like proceed not necessarily that the characters have to choose because the characters personal stories are all i need to mix them into these sure. these these plots that are going on too but that's where the what's we talked about the what's going on document my what's going on document is constantly changing because of that mm-hmm. because sometimes i have to shift it because i have control over that mm-hmm. for what everybody in the background is doing to help make this coherent narrative mm-hmm. I'm just imagining a thing like I'm imagining a game where you're like, okay, like maybe between sessions, Bob, I'm emailing and texting and whatever, Bob, um, consider what you might say to your brother if you encountered him on the street next session. See, that would be cool. Right. right? And then, and then like Bob's got a week where he's like sitting around thinking of like, you know, oh, I'd be like so angry. I would say these things, you know, and then like when he shows up to the game and like that scene occurs, maybe it happens because it depends on how far you progress that night. But then when it occurs, Bob's like, you listen like and just dives in because he's had like he's you know ruminated on it for a week and like tears into this like really dramatic moment there's a matt colville talk has talked about stuff like that he does stuff like that in the yeah. games that he runs so like that's not like an un, hmm. unoriginal idea like people do it yeah i'm just thinking of like what if you had a what if you built a campaign slash game with all of that packed in like retakes 
rewind, re like take two, take three. What if you, you know, um, what if you over interesting? What if you, what if you had some currency to override roles? Like you're just like, you know, uh, you go to pick the lock, fail. Um, you know what? Rewind. I'm going to pick it again. Yeah, man. You want to, you want to, um, like script it up. You want to put that into a, into a game that already sort of exists. Like, yeah, you just take the action movie world structure and sort of re rejigger it. I'll a like bit. a little bit of it. Yeah. Because you could actually, then it would make sense if, if it's going to, that kills your, your, for players that want to be in in that that play space of like mm -hmm. I'm playing my character. Well, if you're an actor, then taking a second yeah. take doesn't matter. Exactly. Right? Like, oh, that was a good line a with the shopkeeper, fuck. but give it to me again. Yeah, you want to do it again? Yeah, you want to do it again? I've actually done that before. Like, do you sure that's what you wanted to say? Like, Sorry, I didn't mean to divert yeah. you from it, but like, it's okay. but it like was this super interesting idea. It of, is an interesting um, game. Like, I'm going to drop this in though. If you and this is all good. If you're going to use the are you sure you want to do that? Always make sure you actually do that when it's a thing cuz We've also played GMs who like to constantly toss out the, are you sure you want to do that? And they mean it just as a, I'm like, just fucking with I'm just fucking yeah. with you. Yeah, yeah, but you know me, I don't do that. No, don't worry, do, no, no, you don't yeah, do that. Like, I'm just saying, everybody out there at home, just, what Jerry said. just be careful. Because yeah. if all of a sudden your players start to trust you, you're going to lose this whole thread. I'm going to pick up the sword. Are you sure? Yeah. Okay, I do. Yeah, okay. I, uh, yeah, <laughs> there's no reason. Okay, you pick up the sword. You pick up the sword. It's fine. Add it to your... Of course I pick up the sword. Yeah, the, the trick... See, the... I feel, okay, well, yeah. now that we're way off off topic. But Bob will eventually rein us in. We're, we're, we're too I'm far going, off Bob will I'm going to go back in a second, but <laughs> if you don't know Game Masters out there, when somebody does something like, I'm going to pick up the sword, you're like, you know it's a bad idea, but you don't, but you want to warn them, you just have them make a check of some sort to see if they notice it's a bad idea. Or describe yeah. it in an ominous way. Like, mean, the sword lays on the ground, like, like smoldering with Darkness and shadows fire. swirl around it. It seems darker on the ground it where it is when you yeah. get near it. Like just yeah. something. Yeah, it radiates. There's, a, no, there's a number yeah. of ways you can do it. The amount of voices whisper in the darkness. He's about to do it. He's about to do it. Pick it up. Yeah, it's my uh, my my reactive check thing. Like because I hate yeah. people when they search for yeah. traps. I'm like, we'll make a perception check. You're in the front of the party. Mm -hmm. You fail that perception check. Well, you stepped in the trap. So. Yeah. Like that's my favorite one. Like I'm searching for traps. You roll. Oh, you failed. You found the trap. Yeah. But you stepped on it. Sure. Like that. That's happened in games of mine. Same thing with anything like that. Right. Like you do that. Oh, that's that's a basic GM thing. Yeah, party. You you get get it, learn it, understand it, make it part of your toolbox. It'll help yep. your games a ton. Yeah. <laughs> uh, back to the, the I guess the more complicated thing, the ERI thing, the story <laughs> thing. If you understand story structure, you can modify your what's going on document as you are playing to hit those longer beats, like and and have that epic fantasy story that you want to have that feels like an epic fantasy story with all the tropes and moments that occur um my other one is i still like being surprised mm -hmm. like that is really important to me i like to see what players do mm -hmm. and that's why my uh, document is constantly changing mm -hmm. uh those are probably the two big ones for me like i love storytelling and i love seeing what players will do to help contribute to the story and that's the thing about storytelling is about the player stories too because the thing that you have no control over really is the characters and that's probably the most important thing in a story yeah. yep i used to be the opposite of being surprised. I used to like knowing that I could predict all my players' moves. So I would, you know, create Schrodinger's, you know, Schrodinger's door, you know, Schrodinger's dungeons, whatever. Yeah. But I would also sit there and in my notes, I'd be like, okay, well, if they do this, do that. If they do this, do that. And then I would just like, we'd be playing yeah. and I'd be like, check, check, check. <laughs> like I would pride myself on like, oh, I got these guys. Like I know what they're going to do. Yeah. And, and, and every we'll, once in a while, we yeah. would go over and, there. <laughs> and that's when I discovered. So if you read, um, if you read my essay in Unframed, yeah. I talk about one of the pivotal times that happened, which was in our heist game where the one player decided to let their drug addiction mm -hmm. take over. And it led like I had a whole game planned for that day. We never touched that oh, session. Yep. We had a we basically had a very violent and dramatic intervention with a drug seeking player or drug seeking character. And it was great. 
I loved it. It was like a like it was it was a shot in the arm. I came out of that session. I was like, that's the coolest thing ever. And it took me a little while to realize like that had little to do with anything I planned. Like that was oh, that's what I mean. It was more than okay. Okay, it's it was it was the moment that I shifted from I don't really want to be in control of this whole thing anymore. I want to like I want to like I want to be entertained, and my entertainment comes by not knowing what you guys will do. Yep. I think that a GM that, I, that taught me early on told me a couple years in, the thing you have to remember is that the player characters might not be the most important people in the world, but they are the most important people in the story that they're playing. Because yeah, they're the main characters of the story. Yep. And, keep that, and just always keep that in mind that there's nothing else in the game that's more important to the game itself mm-hmm. than yep. the player characters. The plot may go to hell, the story may go all over the place, the characters may all die, but they're still the most important thing that's going on at the table at, at any given yep. time. I think it's so weird that tabletop role-playing games give the game masters so much uh for the most most part for the most part so much power and autonomy and like direction in the story when really they are a secondary piece of it because the characters and their stories when you're playing campaigns that extend for periods of time are really the stories that people care about and i think that not to get overly analytical but i think that is the product of its war game roots sure. because you can't give Napoleon's army narrative control because otherwise then they just start stacking the battlefield in their favor. So there needed to be another person, right? So if our hobby hadn't arisen out of war games, but our hobbies had arisen out of like improv theater or something, I don't think the GM role, I don't think the GM role would be the same, right? We've propagated like what the GM does. uh, And, you know, games challenge this and games redistribute it. But for the most part, the core of our hobby still follows the idea that we can't empower the player to make a lot of narrative changes because they'll just make it to win the game. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's war game. Well, I mean, the setting and the... the People s- are going to get mad. When I know, right? <laughs> the setting and the opposition are the thing that challenge the character so they yeah. can go through the try-fail cycle. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you just have to be the character that keeps trying and failing. But yeah. we're succeeding and, yeah. Fa- yeah. and then proceeding. But if, our, but if our hobby had arisen out of literature or whatever, players would know to do the try-fail cycle. Well, it's weird because our hobby did sort of arise out of some literature, but a lot of that literature was pulp stuff. Yeah, sure. Where you get the Call of Cthulhu stuff, which is made, the characters constantly are getting murdered yeah. by or yeah. turning into monsters. When you is- get Fawford and the Grey Mouser and Conan, which, I mean, even when they lose, they tend to win. Yeah. Yeah, which is why I think in like if you look at Cthulhu well, games... Gone way off ah, that's fine, should, that's fine. This is quality that. material. When you look at Cthulhu games, like, losing... It's not always bad. No, like, especially like, stop the cosmic horror. D- like dying or dying in the path of stopping the cosmic horror is considered like that's a plus also, for th- that game. Also, if the call, I'm sorry, Drew, did you want to say something? No, look. If the Call of Cthulhu game is following some of the Call of Cthulhu like stories, yeah. then if the themes are actually hit and there's like an actual theme and a lesson taught and it's done it's done well, then you've actually emulated that genre, which is. My, I, I, it's not cosmic horror. It's personal horror because of my ancestors. Sure. Yeah. Right. If that comes up, and eventually you're the thing that turns into the deep one and slaughtered everybody, you've probably done a pretty good job. Yeah. Or you're you the go. you watch everybody die and you become the deep one that walks into the ocean at the end. You've probably had a pretty good game. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, cool. Yeah. I don't know. I were anything else? No. no we're, we're, we're spouting off some good stuff tonight. All right. All right. That means we can probably roll ourselves into the conversation corner because it's probably time. <laughs> All right. Hey, Bob, since you didn't go on vacation, what's your one thing? Yeah, so uh, I have been rereading um, the Star Trek New Frontier books. These came out in, they started around 1997, I believe, uh, all written by Peter David, 
who uh, was prolific with uh, Marvel for a while. He did a huge run on the Hulk that was yeah. wildly popular. Um, and I love his writing style in in these prose novels. Um, but Star Trek New Frontier, he takes a handful of, of existing characters from like Next Generation and then a handful of characters from um, the Starfleet Academy novels that somebody else had written. And he brings in some new characters. And he goes to a new sector of space that hasn't been talked about yet. And he sets up this whole thing where this 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 empire is basically falling that used to control the system. And now we have to see what's going on. And they bring in a new captain to helm the ship called the Excalibur and hilarity ensues. And he's got some really good stories. Um, I had forgotten um, the the amount of levity that he brings to just regular scenes. The cast of characters is amusing as hell and a lot of fun, uh, wildly diverse. Um, it's it's a lot of fun. It's a really fun series. Shelby's in there, right? Shelby's in there. Yeah, she's the she's the first that, officer. I think that's great. Mm-hmm. I our, upon our rewatch, I had a completely new appreciation for Shelby. Yeah, and they really they really go deep on Shelby yeah. in this too. Um, you got Shelby. Um, you've got uh, Robin Leffler from Next Gen. Sure. Um, Ashley Judd. Ashley Judd yeah. from the game. Yes. Robin's um, laws of yes. Yeah. Um, let's see who else do we have from the, uh, uh, there's a handful, like I said, of, of, of characters from the, uh, Starfleet Academy, uh, books. Um, it starts out at the beginning, you get, uh, appearances by Picard and Spock and, uh, Admiral Jellicoe is involved. He's a very, very, very beloved Admiral in the series. And when I say that, I mean, no, (laughs) I, I, I love the theory that somebody has that in a society where there's no, uh, currency anymore. The only reason to advance in Starfleet is ego because you don't get paid anymore. You know? mm-hmm. And so, and they said, that's why all the admirals are such assholes. Yep. It's because the higher you go up in rank in Starfleet, that most of the people that are there are there because they want to have their own ego, Yep. which explains it's a great trope for Starfleet. Yes. Uh, can't, I can't argue that. Yeah. 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 I like so. that you said that most, cause I was like, yeah. then there was Picard. Yep. Picard yep. Was a, yeah. A good person. Yes. Yeah, that's why I said most. But yeah, it's uh, it's a lot of fun. I'm enjoying the reread. I um, five books or six books in six books in man. Uh, the the first four books we're, were actually they were a compilation. Um, they they came out. Um, I forget if they came out in uh in paperback form first or if there was a combined. But there's there's a volume of it where it's like one book that's got all four of the first uh first parts of it. And it's really four parts of one story. Okay. okay. So if you take each individual book, you're, you're not getting a satisfying ending because it's, it's to be continued in each of the first three. Is it like those like little thin paperbacks? They're, they're thin paperbacks, the, like yeah. Walden books? And then once you get to the fifth book, then it's a regular size paperback novel uh, and you go from there. Um, but it, it, it tells a really interesting story. There's a lot of interesting uh, uh, different planets and species and stuff in the sector of space. Some wild stuff happens. Um, and a lot of very Trek stuff. Nice. Um, and it's, it's a ton of fun. So hear that paramount. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Get cracking. I've been saying for years that that would be a great show and it's never going to happen, but I like it. Good times. Jerry. I'll let Phil go next. Go ahead, Phil. All right, Phil. Sure. Um, on the vacation front, I went to Denver and, uh, did a bunch of stuff, ate a bunch of delicious food, uh, found a Korean fried chicken place mm-hmm. that, Oh, mm, so good. I, there's none around here. I can't quite put, I can't quite explain it other than um, the sauces are amazing. The chicken is unbelievably crunchy and delicious. And so, oh no, go, go. And uh, is it something that you think you might be able to attempt? No, no, no. This involves deep frying. Like I don't deep fry anything. Right. If I had the power to deep fry things, my health would be in jeopardy. 
<laughs> like, <laughs> that kind uh, of ability needs to stay out of my hands. No, no. It, I but don't if blame we, you. But if we ever encounter, or if you in your travels ever find a Korean fried chicken place, like, do not pass on it. Good stuff. I did get to run one game while I was out there. Uh, I ran a Cortex game that I whipped up called um, Solar Legacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the tale of the Solar Rangers, where the Rangers went on their uh, first mission. And uh, I actually just took it right from Eureka, a plot that I wrote like mm-hmm. 10 years ago. And I looked at the plot and I'm like, oh, yeah, this will work for this game. I just and quick, like quick wrote it up. You could still buy that book. I totally still buy yeah. the book. We sell it. Um, it's still it's still totally relevant. Um, but yeah, it was fun. And uh, it was fun. I got to introduce uh, Santa Sun to Cortex, uh, which he loved and like immediately ran off. He was like, can I have the Google Docs for the setting? And I'm like, yeah, they're hardly finished, but like take it and run. He is now going to run that for his friends. I don't know if he's running that for his friends or I think they took Cortex and they're starting to like uh, kit it up for the game that they want to run. Oh, nice. I was like, yeah, Even better. I was like, rock on. Good job. I'm, you know, out evangelist and I played some magic and I learned because I'm an old man that uh, you can tell when old people play magic because you put your mana at the top and that's not where you put your mana anymore on the bottom. It goes your mana goes on the bottom and your attackers, your enchantments and stuff go on the top. But that's not how the game was originally played. Uh. Like the 1994, like if you if you learned in 94 and stopped, like you put your mana at the top. When I was a young and playing magic. But it makes actually more sense because when people want to see attackers and defenders it's they're right up there in that they're right up at the top so you can like just see across but anyway played a little magic it was uh i remember why i stopped i like the game <laughs> i just you know don't like buying cards yeah so anyway that was play online yeah I, i'll maybe i'll talk more about it in the after show but anyway i had a lovely time hung out with Sunday. it was a blast cool. somebody pick one of these up jerry sure i'll talk about the one thing i saw was prey the prequel i guess you'd call it to mm-hmm. predator um it came out while I was on vacation in the Caribbean, so I didn't see it. So I read a lot of people talking about how great it was. So I got home and decided to watch it. And um, it's basically a predator lands in what I'm guessing is like 1700s. It's 1781. 1781 Comanche territory. Yep. And it's amazing. Great characters, great story building, great plot. I'll be honest, as it started, I was watching it and it's like the first 20 minutes or so, I'm like, this is interesting. I like it, but I don't know why everybody's raving about it. And then shit gets real. <laughs> and it just takes off, cranks the story up to 11. The action's incredible. The characters make some hard choices. Um, and it's just fun. If you enjoy action movies, if you enjoy good storytelling. Last girl horror movies, because that's essentially what all Predators movies are, is final girl horror movies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's got it's got direct tie ins to at least one of the other Predator movies. Um, but there's some very good stuff in it. And there are some literal holy shit moments. Uh, Lily was listening to me watch it. And I was like, oh, holy shit. What, what, are you OK? I'm like, I just I'm watching Prey. So I finished watching it and told her about it. She really sat down and started watching it herself. And again, pretty much she's like, it's OK. I'm like, just just wait. And I could hear the other one. She's like, wow. And so that's always fun. You can also watch it in Comanche. Yeah. Yeah. You can. Yeah. Yes, yeah. that's cool. Yes. Uh, my, my only drawback is the version I saw, I had subtitles and translated everything but the French. I have no idea what the French people were. So I, <laughs> I guessed at it. But for some reason, the characters in the movie that speak French, all the subtitles are still in French. Huh. Interesting. Which is weird. That is weird. So that I have no idea what they're saying. I guess what they It could saying. be worse because I've seen things where the subtitle says, speaking in French. Yeah. Yes, thanks. And it's like, thank you thanks. for that gripping commentary. Yeah, what the helpful. hell did they say? Yeah. 
Uh, I, I will just say if you like if you like subtitles, watch Stranger Things in subtitles because they have subtitles on the screens like disturbing eldritch squelching noises will come across the bottom of the screen. Yeah, the reason it takes twenty minutes before anything really happens is because that is the the period of time before the breaking of two happens. When the breaking yeah. of two happens is when things get mm-hmm. real. Yeah. It's actually about the right amount of time for that because yeah. that movie is an hour and thirty seven minutes long. So 97 minutes, it's about 20% of the film and 15% of the film. That's about right for that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not bad 20 minutes. It's not like you're going, Oh, when is something going to happen? Well, they have to establish what's yeah. normal for these. Yeah. People. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's just that it's, it's interesting and fun, but it's like, it didn't wow me. And I was like, okay, I don't, I, I, I like this. I don't know why people are raving about this. So that dress contrast is so, yeah, so there when it happens. Yes. That's yeah. good. Original yeah. Predator gets away with that by penis measuring for like That's the first true. 20, 30 minutes. It's just a bunch of dudes being dudes. Like yep. hardcore dudes. I mean, the, the, the big, the big handshake, the uh, Schwarzenegger, yep. Carl Weathers hand, like there's just like a bunch of penis measuring for 20 minutes. Yeah. And then you get into like, what happened to these people? And then all hell breaks. Yeah, they, they're going to take a, they're going to take a bit of time to establish who the Comanche are, yeah. who the girl is, yes. what her problem is, yes. who the brother is, yes. what his deal is with her. Mm-hmm. It, it takes a little while. I don't think 20 minutes is a little while. Yeah. No, considering I'm a fan of RRR, 20 minutes is like just, you know. Yeah. yeah. It's, 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 I'm telling you right now, if you like any of the Predator movies at all, I do. even the bad ones, all of them, um, most of them, you, you will, you will, you will definitely enjoy Prey. I'm, I'll watch it. This yeah. Week. Yeah. Predator I gotta watch it. Underrated. Yeah. What? We should Predator have a movie. Underrated. Underrated. That wasn't what I was talking mm. about, but go ahead. No, I know. I'm just saying, I was just saying that in general that Predator <laughs> 2 is an underrated film. Oh, I like Predator 2. I, I, I really don't. enjoy it. I, uh, I, the, only, the only two I. The only two that I found disappointing were The Predator, the most recent one before this, and uh, Alien vs. Predator 2, whichever the sequel that I called that one. one It's not. The rest of my Alpha Fun were a lot of fun. Predators was also very good. I don't think Bob saw that. I've never seen Predators either. Oh, it's good. The one with Adrian Brody? Yeah. That does not disappoint. Movie night. Yeah, we're Predator, but. My one thing. Yeah. So I was on vacation. Also, I was in Asheville, uh, Tennessee, Asheville, North Carolina, North Carolina. And I went to the Biltmore, which is the largest privately owned property in the United States. It was built by George Vanderbilt. Those those Vanderbilts, you know, yes. the ones that the famous Vanderbilts. Are, it built more. Uh-huh. Uh, it's an eight thousand acre property. The house is a the mansion is a two hundred and fifty room mansion. I probably mm-hmm. saw eighty of the rooms while I was there. Mm-hmm. It was built in the late eighteen hundreds. Uh, it was uh, the the architect was his name was Hunt. I don't remember what his first name was. He's famous. Um, but the uh, the um, landscaper was Olmsted, mm-hmm. like Olmsted that did like Washington, D.C. and all the parks in Buffalo, New York before they yep. destroyed it. Because we used to have like this parkway system that you could walk to every park and they destroyed that with highways, which is useful, but also sad. Yeah. Um, they had two life-size portraits of them in the billboard, almost life-size portraits, when they were old men too. But it was pretty cool. Uh, there's a bowling alley in the basement. Of course. And it's not automatic. Like the servants had to go and set the pins up. <laughs> There is a there is a seventy thousand gallon swimming pool in the basement, and that was when people didn't have swimming pools. Sure, yeah. sure. It was kind of a, not a thing. There were two original Monets there that he bought from Monet because <laughs> Monet was there. Yeah, as okay. a guest. Okay. Uh, if you're a, if you like French impression, impressionistic painting, there's also a couple of Degas and uh, oh, I can't remember who the other. So when was this built? In the late 1800s. So okay. the planning for it. Uh, started in in like 1890. The or the planning force started in, in in the late 1880s. The construction started in 88, I think, and it was finished in, in 96 in July. In 1896 in July, cool. they uh they had to actually build um a brick making facility and a bunch of other things on the on the premises to to like pump out bricks. And I've had, been there. They had like 300 workers there, and um the servants' quarters were impressive. 
uh, but there were well over like 400 pieces of art inside of the building. And it's still privately owned. Like it's a tourist spot these days, sure. but it's still owned by the Vanderbilts. They still have parties there. <laughs> also, uh, I guess Jennifer Pakula got married there. It was a $3 million wedding. It was Jennifer Pakula. That's, that's the Pakula's daughter. Yeah. Oh, the, okay. The, got the, it. The, the couple that owns the Sabres yeah, and the, the Bills, bills. And, okay. and the Bandits and everything. Yeah. So that was, I thought that was interesting. There was a trolley driver that told us the story of that wedding, like how they had, they thought it was a permanent structure that was being erected and they find out that it's a $3 million wedding. So was, that was kind of silly, but the place is gorgeous. I highly recommend going there, especially if you like, like history and architecture and art. There was a two cool stories from that one. Um, the music room was, wasn't finished for a very long time, even after the building was open. And during world war two, the United States government sent uh, well over a hundred pieces of artwork to the Biltmore in secret in, in iron casks ca- cases, and they were stored in that room. And um, Mrs. Vanderbilt didn't charge the United States government anything for it because she thought it was her civic duty to do that. But while there were people like having parties, they were still having parties and things like that during this period of time. But there were like MPs there every day, like guarding this mm. cloaked off place in the Biltmore mm. that people wonder about. That came out much later that there was famous artwork from dc just sitting there um the other story is is that there's a room called the halloween room in the basement and the reason it's called the halloween room is because it used to be a storage area and it's 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 pretty basement there's like it's like brick brick walls and columns and things like that but it's all painted with witches and bats and uh that kind of motif but it was done during a new year's eve party when the the um daughter-in-law and son of george or the daughter and son-in-law of George uh, Vanderbilt inherited the place, obviously, because, you know, eventually he died. They had a New Year's Eve party, and the theme was uh, was Romani uh, heritage. So people were dressed up like the Romani, and then they went down there and they painted all the walls in that theme. Mm. So like magic and mysticism and whatnot. So sure. those were pretty cool places. Uh, maybe I'll throw some some of the pictures that I took and maybe some of the video. that Well, I won't throw the video because I wasn't supposed to take video. I didn't do that. That never happened. You never did. Now, something odd which I will be interested to know if anybody hears this upon listening to this segment. Um, but when you started talking about the, the Halloween room and stuff, there was a brief pause. And in the dead silence, after you, you paused between words, I heard a door creak in my ear. Yeah, I heard it over there. Yeah. Too. <laughs> and I went, that was spooky and well-timed. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes it's sometimes it happens. But that's it. Uh, I guess that's the show then, right? I, I believe that's the show. Well, which I we should move on to some Patreon shout That takes us right into the Patreon show. You know what time it is? It's time for the Royal Court. <gasps> yeah, buddy. All right, let's do this. Very big thank you to Andrew Dacey, the Warden of Whiskies, Andy Olson, the Duke of Dice, Bread, the Royal Mead Maker, Craig, the Lord of One Name, Chromatic Chameleon, the Queen's Spy Mistress. Eric Bontz, the Duke of Gators and the Lord of Beefiness. He only has, he's the only person to have two titles. Yeah, so actually, one of them is a title. The other one is just uh, it's not oh, really a... Oh, he's holder of two titles. Holder of two titles. All right, fine. GM Gerrymander, the Lord of the After Show. <laughs> Jesse Edmond, the Royal Doctor. Jim Loves Games, the Royal Merchant Emeritus. That makes sense. Evil John Carney, the Court Necromancer. Kevin Lovecraft, the Royal Beard. Richard Wyatt, Captain of the Royal Airship Fleet. Schmitty, the Keeper of the Labyrinth. Tiberius Starcrash Smith, the Baron of Britannia, Todd Crapper, the Prophet of Probability, and Richard Wayne, the Knight of Roseville Beach. Mm-hmm. Thank you to all of them, and thank you to everyone for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can get more content through our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash misdirectedmark, where we release videos on Tuesdays along with other content on our Patreon. You can also listen to some of the other shows in the Restricted Mark Network, such as They're a Super Geek, Mastering Dungeons, Bone, Stone, Obsidian, Anna's Talking Games, 
the Gnome Cast, Bonus Experience, and the amazing back episodes of She's a Super Geek. You can and should also check out our sibling podcasts, Tabletop Bellhop, The Knights of the Night, and the all-new GM Mastermind. After you have reflected upon where your ERI comes from, send us some feedback. You can reach us directly using the old, weird, archaic emails at mmp at misdirectedmark.com. Hit us up on the Twitters. The show and the network is at misdirectedmark. Robert M. Everson, GM Gerrymander, The Light 101. Where you can get your smooth jazz all day long. Oh, yeah. And me, DNA Phil. Remember that Patreon we mentioned earlier? If you want to support us and the other shows from Misdirected Mark Productions, you can do that at patreon.com slash MMP. Your patronage will get you access to the After Show podcast, our show notes, the Bamboo Lounge podcast, and other special releases. Like, you know, that What's Going On video that I put together when uh-huh. we did the parody. Well, this has been a Misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. Mic drop. We out.